If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa back from the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 6th. Today, how the Secretary of State is driving policy on Iran and President Trump's confrontational tweets. Plus, the battle for control in Venezuela. Last Thursday, we learned that President Trump had ordered a drone strike on an Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, who was the head of the Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. This is its external wing of the Iranian military and easily the most prominent Iranian military figure and probably the second most important person, frankly, in the Iranian leadership. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. It was a huge event. My colleagues and I here at The Post then began late Thursday night into Friday and then throughout the weekend talking to defense officials, uh, diplomats, officials in other countries, as well as people within the intelligence community and the administration to piece together the timeline of how we understand that President Trump came to this huge and momentous decision to order this strike on the Iranian general. And I'm just curious, when the announcement happened that this strike had taken place, Was it surprising to you? It was a huge surprise. And immediately, I think we all understood that this was not just your typical kind of drone strike. It's certainly like, you know, a strike on on a terrorist. This was going to be something more akin to a political assassination and that the geopolitical consequences were going to be significant. But you've been reporting on how this was a decision that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had been pushing for a while. What did you find out about how that began, how this first became an option that Pompeo had been seriously looking at? Well, Pompeo came into the administration as the CIA director back in 2017, having been one of the most outspoken uh, Iran hawks in the Congress. He was one of the most vocally and strongly opposed members of Congress to the Iran nuclear deal that the Obama administration signed with other nations. So he comes in with that kind of predisposition, sets up a new Iran mission center at the CIA. He's sort of kind of going full bore on Iran. If we fast forward to this past summer, 2019, we'll remember there was this kind of escalating series of events in the Persian Gulf. The Iranians were found to be putting uh, small mines on ships. Uh, They then downed a U.S. surveillance drone. And at that point, Pompeo was pushing very hard for a significant response. And it's at that point that we understand that he starts essentially presenting this option of going after Qasem Soleimani, who is leading a lot of those efforts in in the region. And at that time, over this past summer, why wasn't President Trump listening to him and and taking action on this thing that Pompeo had been proposing? I think it goes back to Trump's 
fundamental hesitation about getting deeper into conflict in the Middle East. I mean, he campaigned on getting out of foreign wars. And I think Donald Trump ultimately decided that going to, you know, the lengths of an airstrike on Iran for the downing of an unmanned drone uh, wasn't a line he was ready to cross. But for Pompeo, what was it like to have this be the option that he thought was the best option than have President Trump say, actually, we're not going to do that? He was described as morose about it by Mm -hmm. one official uh, that we talked to in our reporting. For him, Soleimani was kind of the guy really in charge of all of this. And I think he has long seen taking out him not just as something that would be symbolically significant, but that could be a strategic move that would be wise. So then this move was something that was negotiated over the summer when tensions were flaring and things kind of calmed down, and it didn't really become an option again until recently. What happened that escalated Pompeo's push to do this strike? And how did he go about convincing President Trump to get on board with his plan? So throughout December, there were a series of rocket attacks by a militia group in Iraq called Khatib Hezbollah, which is essentially a proxy arm of the Quds Force. On December 27th, one of those rocket attacks at a facility in northern Iraq claimed the life of an American contractor who was working there. That clearly was a kind of a a match that lit the fuse for where we are now. And it was a line crossed for President Trump as well. Well, he had made clear to aides that if an American life were ever lost because of Iranian aggression, his calculus would change. So that's changing, and Pompeo at that point also now sees an opening. He then goes down to Mar-a-Lago with Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and there are other senior officials down there lobbying the president uh, to take this strike. I mean, this is one of the options that are presented in retaliation for the rocket attack. And of course, then that week, supporters of this militia group also marched on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, which was seen as a another escalation as well. But really, I think it's you got to look at this, this death of an American contractor as being sort of a trigger point. It changes the president's mind. And I think he does see it as sort of a little bit of an eye for an eye. They took a life. We're going to take a life. And you've also been reporting on how during this process, it wasn't just Pompeo who was talking about this. The secretary of defense had also become a vocal advocate for taking this step. And that's important because Pompeo and Secretary Esper are actually they're friends. That's right. They've known each other. They both went to West Point. Um, They are described to us as in lockstep on this. Secretary Mattis, who preceded Secretary Esper, not in favor of this kind of escalatory measure. So he and Pompeo were not on the same page. Pompeo and Esper are. And importantly, General Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the most senior uniformed officer in the military, he was on board with this as well. So what you have now at the upper level of the president's national security apparatus, everyone being in favor of this more aggressive push and of taking this option of hitting Soleimani. If you go down a level or so in the bureaucracy, there is great surprise that they went this route. And I don't think that certainly people, career people in the intelligence community or in the Defense Department all agreed that this was a wise course of action, but they're ultimately not the decision makers. So the fact that this is something that Pompeo has been pushing for many months now, how does that compare with what he's been saying publicly about the impetus for the strike, which is that there was some grave immediate threat that the U.S. was trying to prevent from happening, and the way to prevent that from happening was by killing Soleimani. There's a lot of inconsistency and, frankly, some incoherence in what Secretary Pompeo has publicly said in recent days about why they did this. This was a bad guy. We took him from the battlefield. We saw that he was plotting further plans to take down Americans, in some cases, many Americans. We took the right action to defend and protect America. President Trump will never shy away from that. 
On the Sunday shows, Secretary Pompeo really went out of his way to describe the nature of the threat from Soleimani and the Quds Force as imminent, as saying that he was about to be engaged in activities that could cost hundreds of American lives. So something very dramatic that sounded like it had to be, that required a swift action from the United States. When he was pressed on this, though, wait, are we talking about something, is this in days or is this going to be more in weeks or more of a long-term uh, threat? Say the attacks were imminent. How imminent were they? Were we talking about days? Were we talking about weeks? If you're an American in the region, days and weeks, this is not something that's relevant. We have to prepare. We have to be ready. There is less risk today to American forces in the region as a result of that attack. I'm proud of the effort that President Trump undertook and the execution. You know, he, he kind of pushed back and saying, well, if you're an American in the region, you know, you don't measure things in days and weeks. Well, you actually do. I mean, and we measure imminence in, the, in terms of days or weeks as well. That's a very specific word in the context of intelligence and military operations. It's actually written into guidance of how we're supposed to do drone strikes. Uh, the U.S. government and the military does drone strikes. And when we pressed on this saying, are you talking about some kind of spectacular event like what we would think a terrorist group would do? Or are you talking about this kind of general threat that has existed from Quds Force in the region for years uh, and has clearly claimed lots of lives? And we really couldn't get an answer to that. And I think in, in, in reporting this out, what we've determined is that it was more of that kind of second category, that this was not something huge that was about to happen. It feels more like maybe an escalation of what the Quds Force was already doing. But then we couldn't get a clear explanation as to why killing Soleimani would put a stop to that. The Iranian military, it's a bureaucracy. It's not a terrorist organization. It's not like when we killed Osama bin Laden and then al-Qaeda sort of started to disintegrate and fall apart for lack of a leader. They named the successor to Soleimani within three hours of his being killed. So it, whatever plans he put in place presumably will continue without him. We've heard from Democrats saying that they were not persuaded by the intelligence briefings they received last week. When Secretary Pompeo says that this decision to take out uh, Qasem Soleimani saved American lives, saved European lives, he is expressing a personal opinion, not an intelligence conclusion. Notably, I haven't heard Republicans coming out and saying that they think the intelligence did show that. What we've seen more is traditional allies of the president in Congress coming out and saying it was a good move to take Soleimani out, that he was a menace and this was strategically wise. They haven't really come out and tried to make a defense of the intelligence underpinning the administration's argument for doing this strike. And I think a lot of people, a lot of members of Congress, a lot of regular people are honing in on that. The fact that if you're saying that there was some grave imminent threat that you were trying to prevent, but there's no proof of that actual threat, what does that say about the legitimacy of doing this, especially when you have all these repercussions happening, right? The Iran announced over the weekend that they're basically pulling out of all of the commitments that they made from the 2015 nuclear deal. And you sort of have to look at this and wonder is the U.S. safer or less safe than it was a week ago? Yeah, I think that's, those are all the right questions to be asking. What was the assessment of how Iran would react? It's not clear that much of an assessment was done, frankly. Secretary Pompeo on the Sunday shows insisted that the United States was safer and the world was a safer place with Soleimani gone. Well, if that's the case, why is the president sending thousands of troops to Iraq? Um, why are we sending hundreds to reinforce the embassy? That doesn't seem like the world's safer. Why are they telling all Americans to leave Iraq as quickly as possible? 
in some ways, I think a moment like this was bound to happen. When you have a president and you have, frankly, officials in his administration who routinely distort facts, who lie, who hype intelligence, uh, there's been a longstanding complaints about Secretary Pompeo. When you have this kind of credibility issue with the public already, then when you come forward and have to say to the world, believe us, something really bad was about to happen, that's why we did what we did, you've got a very steep hill to climb there. And a lot of the skepticism that we're hearing, particularly from our allies in Europe uh, and from members of Congress, I think is partly informed by this kind of boy who cried wolf problem, right? We've heard from so many times misstatements of truth or outright lies from the president and his most senior advisors. So why should we believe them now? And when they can't really put their finger on something specific and concrete publicly, that just compounds the problem for them. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. Last Friday, soon after Soleimani's death, Iran began to make threats against the U.S. They vowed to take severe revenge. And how did the president respond? Not calmly. He's responded with a lot of tweets, a lot of all-cap tweets. That's Phil Rucker. The White House bureau chief at The Washington Post. Phil says that ever since Soleimani's death, the president's tweets have become increasingly hostile. He had a tweet over the weekend where he said, the U.S. has the biggest, the strongest, the best military in the world, and I will not hesitate to send some of that new equipment Iran's way if they were to retaliate. And then President Trump also talked about retaliating specifically in the form of targeting Iranian cultural sites. Yeah, this was a significant threat from President Trump. He said that America, the the U.S. military, has targeted 52 locations in Iran, including a number of sites of cultural and historical importance to Iran as a country. You know, attacking a cultural site like that is a violation of international law. That is a war crime. And, And Trump's threat alarmed a lot of Democrats as well as Republican lawmakers over the weekend here in Washington. But Trump doubled down on it. He was asked about this aboard Air Force One Sunday night as he was flying home uh, from his vacation in Florida, and and he said that he would consider cultural sites. He said, and I quote, they're allowed to kill our people. They're allowed to torture and maim our people. They're allowed to use roadside bombs and blow up our people, and we're not allowed to touch their cultural site. It doesn't work that way. Though I would point out that historically we haven't used Iranian actions during conflict as our bar for what we should and should not be able to do. No, we haven't. And and we've also always, uh, you know, followed international law. There's a Geneva Convention. Or try to. Uh, You know, attacking a cultural site like this is is a war crime. And uh, and, and it's just an example, I think, of Trump reacting day to day to this situation with Iran uh, without any regard for conventions or policy or norms or even international law. He feels like he's the president of the United States, the commander in chief, and he can do whatever he pleases at any at any given moment. And along those lines, one other tweet that I want to point out is the one that he made about basically saying that he doesn't need to give Congress any advance notice or go to Congress to be able to take 
action against Iran and flouting basically the War Powers Act. What what was that tweet about and, and what was the response to that? That tweet was stunning because he was basically making a mockery of uh, of his obligation to advise Congress of any uh, of any war action. Uh, and he was responding to complaints from a number of Democrats, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and, and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer over the weekend that he had authorized this drone strike on the Iranian general without having notified Congress. And so he was preemptively notifying Congress of any future strikes against Iran and by saying that his comments on Twitter, his postings uh, on Twitter should be sufficient notification uh, for Congress. So the way that President Trump is talking about these things, what does that say about how he will be navigating this very precarious situation in the coming weeks? First of all, it's it's really extraordinary that we have a president making declarations of war or, or commentary about possible war on Twitter uh, on the fly, sometimes after midnight, <laughs> as was the case on, on late Saturday night. Uh, we've never seen this before. And it tells you how much of of the U.S. moves are being driven by the president's whims and fancies. He is reacting to television news coverage. He's reacting to what his uh, friends and allies and advisors and family members had been telling him over the holiday down at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. And he's reacting to a small handful of advisors. The national security staff has been uh, pretty drained out over the last few years. It, it, it's a very small team advising the president, including Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, and Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor. But these decisions are really being made by the president himself. And they seem to be rooted in sort of gut instincts about how to get back and, and react to the latest blow from Iran as opposed to some sort of grand strategy. It does not seem that there's uh, a broader plan in place at the moment. And what is the atmosphere inside the White House and among senior officials with them seeing the president responding to these things in this bellicose and, and kind of confrontational fashion? Well, as you would expect, uh, Martine, there's there's a, a rush to defend the president and and back him up. We saw this morning Kellyanne Conway was out on, on, on Fox News and, and spoke to a number of reporters in the briefing room defending the president's actions. Well, the president knows that he was on solid ground constitutionally, legally, strategically to have taken out one of the world's uh, best known, most bloodthirsty and brutal terrorists. There's not been a ton of engagement from the White House in terms of detailing the specifics of the intelligence that was considered before making this decision and and some of the other more traditional uh, briefings that we're used to having when there are matters of, of war and peace in this country. But there does seem to be a rush to stand behind the president to defend him and, and to snuff out any questioning of his judgment. So we've seen some critics of the president basically make the argument that that one of the reasons why President Trump chose to take this action against Soleimani was to distract from this impending impeachment trial that will likely start in the next few weeks. Do you think that's a fair criticism? And and when we talk about President Trump using his gut instincts to make these kinds of decisions, do you feel like that's part of his calculus? You know, Trump thought he was going to be returning to Washington to face uh, an impeachment trial in the Senate. That was going to dominate the news. He, in December, became the third president in history to be impeached by the House of Representatives. And that was certainly going to color his reelection campaign as we entered the new year in 2020. 
Now we're back talking about a national security crisis. He's a wartime commander in chief. Uh, he has big decisions to make. And it certainly, according to Trump advisors and, and allies, is politically advantageous for him to be focusing on protecting Americans, fighting terrorism, uh, dealing with these threats outside of our borders, as opposed to defending himself uh, against the impeachment inquiry. Whether that's the sole reason for his decision, uh, we just don't know. But it, 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 there's little doubt in my mind that that was a part of his calculation. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. Funeral processions for Soleimani over the past few days have brought huge crowds in Iraq, in Lebanon, and in the Iranian capital of Tehran, where hundreds of thousands of people gathered in the streets on Monday. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader, led the funeral prayer. He wept as he prayed over Soleimani's coffin. And he and other Iranian leaders vowed to take revenge against the U.S. And now, one more thing. Sunday was supposed to be an important day. Over the weekend, chaos broke out in Venezuela. Juan Guaido, who is the opposition leader and also a man who has claimed to be a rival president to Nicolas Maduro... He was due to be re-elected as head of the National Assembly. The reason why that's important is because his legal claim to the presidency is based on his status as head of the National Assembly. So his re-election was absolutely key. Anthony Fiola is the South America and Caribbean bureau chief for The Washington Post. So what happened was, you know, something that the opposition has called dictatorial theater where literally these guys showed up to try to enter the National Assembly, and many of them, including Guaido, were physically blocked from entering the building by armed security forces. Sunday, there was a dramatic moment when Guaido, you know, dressed in his blue business suit, sought to scale uh, the wrought iron fence with spikes that surrounds the National Assembly. It was a real melee in the sense that you had at one side um, some of his supporters trying to lift him. On the other side, you had armed security forces that were trying to pull him down. In the end, he didn't succeed in getting over that fence. But I think the optics of that was meant to show him trying to do whatever he could to get into the assembly that he had been locked out of. He had a ripped business suit by the time he got down off that fence and, you know, started addressing journalists to explain, you know, tactically what had happened and, you know, to try to explain the opposition's next move. What then transpired inside the assembly 
was that a politician, Luis Parra, who had previously been a lawmaker in the opposition, was sworn in suddenly a few hours later as the new president, essentially the new Guaido there, right? But Guaido and the rest of the loyal National Assembly basically had to regroup hours later in the offices of a newspaper in Caracas in order to have their own rival session of parliament where Guaido was re-elected with a quorum of 100 legislators who voted 100 to 0 to re-elect Guaido. The outcome now is very messy, right? I mean, the opposition would argue that nothing has changed other than their physical location. But Maduro and Luis Parra, who is now the head of this other kind of, you know, pro-government National Assembly, would argue differently. You know, basically what you do have is a situation where, you know, one side in Venezuela is hailing their National Assembly and the other side of Venezuela is hailing theirs. But for the international community, I think it's clear that for the moment, they still recognize Guaido and they recognize the fact that he remains the legitimate head of the National Assembly. Anthony Fiola is the South America bureau chief for The Washington Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. A word about last Thursday's episode, about what's in and what's out for 2020. There are two pieces of information that we need to correct. Despite our colleague Alahe's newfound passion for baseball, she was mistaken in the team that third baseman Anthony Rendon has been signed to. He's headed to the Los Angeles Angels. And though we're still forecasting that birds will be out in 2020, they're not going extinct yet. There are 29% fewer birds in the U.S. and Canada today than there were 50 years ago. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, a journalist with The Washington Post and the creator of Presidential, a 44-episode podcast journey through American presidential history. If one of your resolutions this year is to become a more engaged citizen, to brush up on your understanding of the nation's politics, then I've got a suggestion. Take the Presidential Challenge in 2020. Each of the 44 podcast episodes of Presidential tells the story of how a former president climbed his way to the White House, what he did there, and what's different about the country today because of his time in office. If you start now and you listen to one episode on a different U.S. president per week, you'll make it through the entire history of the presidency by Election Day. The episodes feature interviews with famous presidential biographers. When I was writing my biography of Clinton, I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad? And with award-winning journalists. The day he resigned, he called all of his aides and friends and family to the West Wing of the White House just before he left on the helicopter. You can find all 44 episodes of the Presidential Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential 
or on any of your other favorite podcast platforms. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.